Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 37th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing the Musburo, a Muslim governmental entity created by the Bolsheviks and led by the indigenous peoples of Turkestan. everyone who celebrates this is our final episode of the year except for a surprise episode we have planned for patreon supporters i wish you all a safe and happy new year enjoy waving goodbye to 2021 and take care of each other as we enter 2022 and now time for making history first vaccines over 800,000 people have died in the united states and over 5 million have died in the world because of covid19 and now we have a new variant omicron on the rise you must get vaccinated, and if you're already vaccinated, get the booster. This is no longer about ending COVID-19. We're back at square one. We're back at containment strategy. If we don't increase our vaccination numbers, share our vaccines with the rest of the world, and get more people to wear masks and social, and social distance, then we may end up back to where we were in April and May of 2020. This isn't a joke. Too many people have died. Too many people's lives have been uprooted and changed. Too many people are struggling because of this pandemic. The only way to make it stop is to get vaccinated and ensure that others can get vaccinated. Second, some good news. I don't know if you remember in August, we talked about the Kabul small animal rescue in Afghanistan. They're still there. They're still taking care of animals. Um, but they now have permission to evacuate 150 dogs and 150 cats in January and need funds to help with the evacuation and the continued care of the younger animals they're not able to evacuate just yet. I'll provide a link to where you can donate in the description. Third, on December 6th, Never Again went to Secretary Mayorkas' house and demanded he uphold the president's promise and end the 115 ICE contracts. Instead, Secretary Mayorkas called the police and arrested the protesters. They're all okay, but it's obvious that the president has broken yet another promise that he made during his campaign. Never Again's plan is to turn 2022 into the year of immigration reform. And so to do that, one of the things that we're doing is this campaign called Release Not Transfer. So what does that mean? Right now, for specifically in Illinois, a bill was passed this year, in 2021, that said that Illinois will no longer detain you know, ICE prisoners in Illinois prisons. However, right now, there's 130 immigrants being detained in, uh, pris in prisons, McHenry and Tentaki. Starting in January, they need to empty out these prisons. And what we're afraid of is that they're going to either transfer them to the other hellish prisons that we have across the country, or they're going to deport them. And so Release Not Transfer is a campaign to release these prisoners and help them integrate back into society. And so OCAD is kind of leading the charge here. Never again, Chicago is supporting them. OCAD has released a petition that will be sent to Secretary Mayorkas and Sylvie Renda, the acting field office director of ICE, demanding that they release the prisoners, do not transfer them, do not deport them. We'll provide a link to the petition in the description. And also uh, keep an eye on the Never Again Twitter space and the Never Again Chicago Twitter space, as well as OCAD, Mejentes, and Racies. We will provide links to those Twitter pages in the description. Fourth, as I'm sure you know, Build Back Better is dead. Election reform is dead. Voting rights is dead. Student loan forgiveness is dead. Immigration reform is dead. Addressing climate change is dead. I, I believe Congress today took a break and went home for the holidays. And then President Biden is not using his executive orders to do anything that he promised. 
this this presidential administration has done a number of good things. I'm not trying to take that away from them, but they have not kept their promise on anything, really. And they're not handling COVID-19 correctly. And they need to hear that we are disappointed and upset with them. The entire point of having an elected government is that they're answerable to the people. They do owe us change. They do owe us governmental assistance because that is what they are voted in to do. That's like their number one job. And so what we need to do is that we need to rest during the holiday, spend time with our families if we can, and then prepare to hit the ground running in 2022. Right now, what we need to do is that we need to flood all the Democrats in boxes with our anger and our disappointment and demand they stand with the people and for the people. Otherwise, why did we elect them in the first place? First, you need to contact them and just let them know that this isn't what you've elected them to do. Second, you need to find a local organization. Um, I recommend starting with Indivisible first and then kind of figure out what else is out there in your area and plan a mass demonstration for 2022. People need to be out in the streets and we need to support local unions and any strikes that are going on until elected officials face reality and do what we elected them to do. Fifth, um, since it is the holiday season, fat the happy stuff, it's time to give back to local organizations. 2022 is going to be a hard year for a lot of people. Um, and there are a lot of organizations on the ground helping any way they can. Some of our some of my favorite organizations are Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, Never Again both on the national level as well as Never Against Chicago, Defund CPD, Brave Space Alliance, OCAD, Mehendes, Good Kids, Bad City, World Relief, International Rescue Committee, also known as IRC, um, who are also running an emergency donation for Afghanistan, which is facing mass famine, in case you were wondering, the Halo Trust, the Syria Campaign, UNICEF, Oxfam International, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, also known as HIAS, World Central Kitchen, The White Helmets, and Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services, as well as many of the organizations on our Making History pages. We'll provide a link to lists of all these organizations, as well as others, um, which you can peruse. If you can't donate, then please just spread the word about these organizations. Sixth, please go to National Abortion Federation and find the local abortion clinics in your area and make a donation. The Supreme Court upheld Texas's BS abortion ban, so the war against bodily autonomy is still on and raging. Planned Parenthood is a juggernaut of an organization, so I'm not saying don't donate to them. Uh, please donate to them, but also focus on local abortion clinics who really need our support right now, especially in some of those southern and midwestern states where there's literally just one clinic for the entire state. And finally, there's an organization created by a bunch of librarians called Freedom, like free freedom, but with read in the middle, um, which is leading the charge against the latest attempts at censorship in our schools. Texas has now expanded its list from just uh, public school libraries to all public libraries. Freedom, the organization, has a couple of campaigns launching in January, include, including writing letters to your school district and librarians. Uh, please check out their website, which I'll post in the description. And continue calling your representatives, calling your school boards, telling them that you are against this bullshit. Now, on to the most borough. 1918 was a whirlwind for Turkestan. It started with the creation and then destruction of an independent government, the Kokan Autonomy, the rise of a violent guerrilla movement in the Fergana Valley, a failed invasion of Bukhara, and the arrival of Pyotr Kobozev, a Bolshevik agent who wanted to end the war between the Russian settlers and the indigenous peoples. His solution was to break the settlers' monopoly in violence and power by allowing the indigenous peoples to arm themselves and to create spaces for indigenous political participation. He encountered stiff opposition from the Russian settlers, and so in March 1919, he created a separate governmental entity for indigenous Muslims only. 
the Central Bureau of Muslim Communist Organizations of Turkestan, also known as the Musburo. Part 1. The Purpose of the Musburo The purpose of the Musburo was to organize the indigenous population around communist principles. They created a network of organizations and conferences all over Turkestan, providing the indigenous peoples an institutional framework to wield governmental power. The Musburo had the right to communicate directly with Moscow and ran their own paper. The power of the Musburo was bolstered by Moscow's announcement of proportional representation in July 1919. The announcement said, quote, In the interest of the policies of worker-peasant power in the East, the broad inclusion proportional to the population of the native Turkestani population and state activity is necessary. Without the requirement of belonging to the party, as long as their candidatures are put forward by Muslim worker organizations. Quote is from Dr. Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. What this meant in principle was that the larger but politically marginalized portion of indigenous peoples would now have the voting power to overpower and outnumber any initiative put forward by the Russian settlers. The Central Executive Committee of Turkestan refused to release the announcement, arguing that returning to proportional representation was taking a step back to the days of Cherensky and the provisional government and would be the undoing of the Bolshevik Revolution. Kobozev and, Musbur- and the Mishboro outmaneuvered the Central Executive Committee by organizing a public meeting in the old city of Tashkent and reading the announcement out loud, later publishing it in an issue of their newspaper. Thanks to their efforts, Muslim communists were able to sit on the Central Executive Committee in a larger number than they had previously. And this is the beginning of the changing political sphere of Turkestan, but also the first step towards Bolshevism and Turkestani nationalism sort of finding common ground. And this this first step will expand, as we'll discuss in this episode, and it helps kind of explain why things work out the way they do. Proportional representation, I think, earns the Bolsheviks a lot of goodwill amongst the intellectual Muslims, and it provides them a chance to exercise political power that they've not had before and puts them in a position to work with the Bolsheviks as opposed to, like, the Bismachi, who refused to engage in politics, who refused to engage with the Bolsheviks, and they are kind of more isolated as just a violent movement. So it's a small moment, and I think it's probably something that's overlooked considering everything that's going on in this region, but I think it's an important moment. Part 2. Understanding Kobozev's Motives Now, one may wonder why Kobozev, who was a Russian and a communist, was working so hard to cripple the power of other Russians in the region especially since these Russians were calling themselves, quote-unquote, the Tashkent Soviet. And the answer, like most things involving Turkestan during the Russian Civil War, is that it's complicated. The first thing we have to consider is the dangerous environment Kobozev finds himself in. When he arrived in Turkestan, the Tashkent Soviet, which was made up of mostly former soldiers and Russian settlers who were using communism as an excuse to push their own agenda, and now they're growing antagonistic towards Moscow, because Moscow keeps sending them orders and letters, and they're just, what do you need to do about it, basically? The relationship with the indigenous peoples were at an all-time low, following the destruction of the Khotan autonomy, the failed Bukharan invasion, the region-wide famine, and the rise of the Basmachi. Not to mention there were three emirs, Bukhara, Kiva, and Afghanistan, and the ever-present threat of Britain, uh, who neighbored Turkestan, and seemed more than willing to quote-unquote liberate their neighbors from Russian influence. And then you also have this Ottoman influence, which we'll talk about in another episode, but it's also kind of scary in the Bolsheviks. And on top of all that, you have the Red Army battling the White Army in Siberia. But by early 1919, there's no guarantee the Red Army would win. And if they lose and the Whites retake Siberia, Kobozev is kind of stuck in Turkestan without, you know, any way to get support. 
It's also telling that even while Kobozev was trying to mend relations and build a government, the old dynamic of new cash tent for Russians and old cash tent for indigenous peoples remained. So it's just, it's not a safe environment. It's not a happy environment. It's not a stable environment. And poor Kobozev has to somehow make it work. The second thing we have to consider is Bolshevik doctrine and ideology. In 1917, the Bolsheviks called out to their Muslim brethren saying, quote, all you whose mosques and shrines have been destroyed, whose faith and customs have been violated by the czars and oppressors of Russia, henceforth your beliefs and customs, your national and cultural institutions are declared free and inviolable. Build your national life freely and without hindrance. And this quote is from Dr. Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. So at this point in time, the Bolsheviks do not want to be an imperialist power. They truly believe that communism could set others free, more importantly, communism wouldn't survive unless it spread to all corners of the world, liberating everyone from capitalism. When their efforts stalled in the West, they turned East, and Turkestan was the linchpin in their efforts to expand into the East and South and Southern parts of Asia. So ideologically, they weren't supposed to discriminate against different peoples. They knew the only way to legitimize their ideology was to convert indigenous folks to communism, and they knew the only way to spread their ideology was if locals spread it for them. This line of thinking clashed severely with the Tashkent Soviet and Russian settlers who had a narrower worldview that consisted mostly of their own individual rights within Turkestan. Third, it makes sense to say that Kobozev needed to work with the indigenous peoples to keep the, to keep the people happy. Okay, cool, but what does that actually look like on the ground? When Kobozev arrived, Tashkent was torn amongst the Russian settlers, the reformers like the Jadids and the Alish Orda, the Ulama, the Basmachi, the Bukharan and Kievan Amirs, and the surviving merchants who once held great sway over Turkestani society, plus these POWs, plus this independent Afghanistan, plus the remnants of this obsession with the Ottoman Empire. There's just a lot, right? So working with indigenous peoples, what does that mean in this context? So Kobozev had to find a way to weed out the troublemakers and find the indigenous peoples willing to work with him and the Bolsheviks. And the only way to do that was to provide opportunities and see who took advantage and then use that person as a poster child of Bolshevik indigenous cooperation, which would hopefully translate to the people feeling heard and seeing impactful enough changes to push them away from signing up with the Basmachi or, you know, working as a fifth column with the, the British or the Afghans or whatever remained of the Ottoman Empire at this point. I think it's safe to say at this point, Kobozev wasn't concerned about creating pure communists, which is going to be a concern that the Soviets will have later. Right now, he's just trying to find people who are willing to work with him and willing to kind of learn the communist language. This kind of ties into our other two points, but the bottom line is, is that no ideology or system of government survives long without local support. Kobozev and by the ascension, and by ascension the Bolsheviks, could not defeat either the strains of czarism, colonialism, nationalism, and foreign intervention within Turkestan um, or the allure of the Basmachi and the other emirates unless they could create a semi-efficient system of government that addressed the people's fundamental needs and he could never do that without indigenous support. Part 3. The Musburo in Action Kobozev was a capable fellow, but he wasn't a puppet master effortlessly organizing events, nor was he the first to understand that the problems played in Turkestan could not be solved without indigenous intervention. Uh, the Turkan autonomy was created to be a government for both indigenous actors and Russian settlers. It was the Russians who rejected the olive branch and then burnt down the entire olive tree and then tried to burn down the grove by invading Bukhara. The difference between the Turkan autonomy and what Kobozev was trying to create is that Kobozev had the backing of the Bolsheviks and the Red Army to enforce his vision 
something the indigenous peoples of Central Asia were keen to take advantage of. Various indigenous peoples used the Musburo and other committees created by the Bolsheviks to push through their agendas or form alliances with the Bolsheviks in hopes of merging Turkic nationalism with communism. And yet, despite all of this, they still met heavy opposition from each other, the Russian settlers in Basmachi, and just the very environment itself. And it became clear that politics alone would not save Turkestan. Part 3a, the diversity of the indigenous peoples of Turkestan. It is tempting to think of an indigenous population as a monolith, but that's far from the truth as the Bolsheviks were finding out. So far in this podcast, we've talked about the reformers of the region, the Jadids and Alas Orda, the Ulama and the Bismachi. But there's this fourth category that rises along with the Musburo, and they are the nationalist communists, or at least that's what we're calling them. If you remember, the Alash Order are in Siberia, being screwed over by the white movement and humiliated by the Bolsheviks who are still pissed that the Alash Order chose the whites over them. Some have found refugee, refuge in Turkestan, and some were even part of the Kokan autonomy, but that's hardly improved the situation because they, like the Jadid counterparts, are mistrusted by the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks, despite knowing they need an elite cadre of intelligentsia, basically, distrust the Jadids and the Alash Order because of their role in either creating the Kokan autonomy, the Alash autonomy, or focusing on nationalism versus communism. Kobozev announced a general amnesty for all participants of the Kokan government, but in the eyes of the Bol- Bolsheviks, it would be a black mark the Jadids would carry for the rest of their lives, and we'll talk a little bit about how that determines the fate of the Jadids later in this season. Worse, their level of commitment to communism was always questionable, especially since they seemed unable to let go of their nationalistic goals and beliefs. Despite this, though, many joined the communist cause, if not the party, and worked within the Musburo and the Central Executive Committee of Turkestan. They were able to use their newfound power to implement their new teaching methods, the reopening and expansion of theater and, and literature, and punish their enemies, particularly the ulama. The ulama would never find common ground with the Bolsheviks simply because the Bolsheviks were anti-religion and the ulama hated everything that didn't fit their exact definition of Islam. The Bolsheviks encouraged the, de- the Jadid's vendetta against the ulama who either survived the best they could or filtered to the ranks of the Bismachi, the traditionalist, conservative, but also reactionary guerrilla movement that was forming in the Ferdana Valley. I think some even went to Bukhara and eventually Afghanistan. We won't dive too deeply into what the Basmachi were up to in this episode, but we will say that their forces were developing into an effective fighting movement that would make life difficult for the Red Army when it arrived. So that leads the newest class of indigenous peoples, the nationalist communists. They were people who didn't get involved in politics or cultural reform through the Jadids or the Alash Orda. Instead, they entered politics via the chaos of the time. Instead, they entered politics via the chaos of the time, and thus they can be thought of as inspired by the deprivations of the Civil War, as opposed to the Jadids' fundamental belief that something was wrong with the society and only modernizing reforms should save them. And I know that doesn't seem like a very important difference, but it is, because if you're a Jadid, you are created at a, high, at a time when you had the Ottoman Empire, which is, is the only Islamic independent empire left in the world, you are used to this idea of the czarist Russia, right? Which is a conglomerate of different countries. And, and your biggest ask is, we want to be autonomous within this greater Russian empire. And, and you believe in Islam, but you believe that the way that the ulama have interpreted Islam is wrong. And that you need to look beyond the ancient teachings that you've always relied on to function in this new world. 
So you're coming from a very different perspective. Um, your philosophy is also developed. I mean, Turkestan was never, I think, blossoming. You know, a Turkestan before 1916 is very different from Turkestan after 1916. Um, and I think that also affects where the Jadids are coming from and how their ideology developed. Versus the national communist who enters politics through deprivation, through famine, through warfare, through ethnic strife. You're not really thinking about the Ottoman Empire because the Ottoman Empire is no more. You're not looking to the West and, and thinking of, of how you can use those methods to modernize. I don't think they've, like, the Bolsheviks haven't led a campaign against Islam yet. So I think there's probably still an Islamic element to it. Um, but your kind of your main concern is what can we do to fix the lack of food? What can we do to address the Russian settlers? Because they're just, we can't get anywhere with them. What are we going to do about the Basmachi? And so they're coming from a very, very different place. And I think the place that they're coming from makes them more attractive to the Bolsheviks because the Bolsheviks can provide them with that ideology, right? They're not, they're not coming with an ideology that they've already created. They're kind of coming in looking for something that's going to solve these problems. Um, and I think it makes them less, quote unquote, dangerous in the Bolsheviks' eyes. To summarize, nationalist communists come from a different perspective than the Dadids, and this different perspective opens them up to learning the language of communism plus the nationalistic and self-determination language that was swirling around the world because of U.S. President Wilson and the end of World War One. Plus, there is, like I said, there's a lot of Ottoman POWs. There is this influx of um, Indian activists that are coming into Central Asia. You know, Afghan officials and activists in Afghanistan, you know, won its independence from, from Britain in 1919. So there, there's a swirl of nationalism that they're picking up, which is different from Jadid nationalism. And so all of this makes them nationalists who try to use the language and concepts of communism to justify their nation building projects. And the rising star of this category of indigenous peoples was Turar Riskulov. Part 3b, MVP of the Musburo, Turar Riskulov. We've met Turar before in one of our earlier episodes. Born to a Tazid family in Samarechi, he studied uh, at a Russo native school and worked for a Russian lawyer before the Russian Revolution. Afterwards, he made his name by attacking the abuses of the Russian settlers and quickly became one of Kobazev's strongest allies in the Musburo. Turar was an incredibly intelligent man who believed that the people of Turkestan needed a strong Central Asian elite to pull the people out of their ignorance and give them the tools to contribute to the future of Central Asia. He seems to have been a quick study, learning the language and principles of communism, and brave enough to point out where the Bolsheviks failed to live up to their own ideals. In 1920, he would write Lenin that, quote, In Turkestan, there was no October Revolution. The Russians took power, and that was the end of it. In the place of some governor sat a worker, and that's all. The October Revolution in Turkestan should have been accomplished not only under the Sodans of overthrow of the existing bourgeoisie power, but also the final destruction of all traces of the legacy of all possible colonialist efforts on part of the Turkish officialdom and hulats. Tular pulled out the Bolsheviks' mentions of self-determination, equality, and anti-colonial rhetoric and used it to shape his own ideology of anti-colonialism. He wrote that, quote, One of the most important conditions for the achievement of the goal of communism advanced by the Communist Party is the self-determination of oppressed peoples. If Soviet Russia needs to show the working class of Western capitalist countries the correctness of its system, then it needs even more to show the, the oppressed East the proper restricting of the social life of Muslim society in Turkestan and elsewhere. He would go even further, stating that, quote, The crude colonialism of Tsarism produced the hate and distrust towards the ruling nation. 
If the proletariat of the ruling nation now scorns the proletariat of the oppressed nations, it will only produce more distrust. And all of these quotes are from Dr. Khalid's book, Making His Stand. So what is he saying? Basically, he's arguing that for communism to thrive in former and current colonies, then it needs to focus on anti-colonialism, holding up Turkestan as an example of how communism can restore rights to indigenous actors and implement policies that would address harms caused by colonialism, while also building the capacity and infrastructure to have a thriving future. He believed building a series of republics honoring different nationalities but united in regional histories and cultures was the best way to achieve their shared goals. So Tuar isn't the only person arguing this. Um, there are a number of people within Kashtan itself, as well as within neighboring countries and neighboring regions, who are, who are kind of arguing the same thing. Um, but they're never able to organize it into a mass movement. Um, and I think part of that is just a lot's going on. A natural distrust, I think, that a lot of the nationalities and ethnicities had of each other you know, the struggles of just trying to nation build during a war. And then later, I think we see um, Bolshevik efforts get in the way. Part 3D, Famine and Ethnic Tensions. The Musburo may have expanded the political power of indigenous peoples, and they were, they were men like Tuar crafting indigenous ideologies, but it was powerless to truly address the level of violence and starvation plaguing the region. By 1919, the Basbachi had completely cut Tashkent off from the Fergana, and violent and idiotic requisition efforts in the steppe drove starving and desperate Kazakhs into Tashkent, which was already on the brink of starvation. In November 1918, Newt Tuar formed the Central Commission for the Struggle and Hunger to assist the Kazakhs, but met hostility from his Russian committee members, his Russian committee counterparts. Instead, the Tashkent Soviets refused to share requisitions of their own grain and closed hospitals to all indigenous peoples. Various departments tried to implement different plans regarding harvest and food collection, but the efforts weren't coordinated and caused more confusion than it helped. The executive committee of Turkestan turned nasty and began blaming rural Central Asians and poor Russian peasants for failing to stand up to Dutov in the steppe and thus helping the Red Army beat the white movement and refusing to share their quote-unquote bounty of food and supplies with the rest of Tashkent. The committee claimed that the indigenous peoples, quote, thanks to their lack of political consciousness and age-old slave-like dependence on Aba or and capitalists, are deluding themselves, dying from hunger, and becoming scoundrels, victims of their own appetite. And that quote is from Dr. Zahedo's book, Russian Colonial Society in Kashtan. Meanwhile, Russian peasants were forming gangs and robbing from their own Central Asian neighbors, further escalating ethnic tensions. The executive committee tried to control grain harvesting by introducing a grain monopoly, allowing their Soviet agents to use violence to take grain, horses, and other goods from the peasantry. Of course, the stolen goods were never circulated throughout the city, and the Russian and indigenous Soviets issued a joint statement protesting a monopoly. Despite all his efforts, neither Kobazev, the executive committee, or Musburo were able to restore order on their own. Part 4. Enter the Turkestan Commission. While Kobazev and the Musburo worked together to counter the Russian settlers' power, address Turkestan's seemingly endless problems, and develop a Muslim nationalist communist ideology, the Red Army was busy shattering Kolchat's army in Siberia. They achieved a breakthrough in October 1919 and managed to establish communication between Moscow and Kashkent. Several units of the Red Army arrived in Kashkent along with a new governmental organization, the Turkestan Commission, also known as the Turk Komisa. This commission consisted of a plenipotentiaries supported by, by Ferenc's Red Army and were meant to govern the region. It consisted of six members, including Mikhail Ferenc. 
The Musburo organized a 500-people welcome of the commission, hoping they would support their efforts against the Russian settlers. The commission assured the people that they were not asking for, for a social revolution, but just national independence. They agreed with Tuar that colonialism was a major problem and reshuffled many Russian settlers from leadership positions. The Musburo promised to raise a 200,000-man army, requesting money and a command staff, but the, the Turkomissar did not trust the Musburo like Kobazov did, and their distrust would grow when Ferenz arrived in early 1920. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed our episode. You can listen to our full catalog on our website, www.sanswarroom.com, as well as Spotify and iTunes. Uh, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also join our Patreon, where we are launching a special episode to celebrate the end of the year, um, and your contributions will help us make this channel even better and allow us to expand to different episode formats and topics. Until next time, happy holidays, have a great new year, and see you in 2022.